I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. He pulled her over and got out of the car. He was wearing a police belt with handcuffs attached when he confronted Sarah. He showed her his police warrant card and used lockdown rules as a reason to falsely arrest her. At 9.34pm, he handcuffed Sarah. A passenger in a car passing by saw this happen and noticed that Sarah was compliant. She had her head down and didn't appear to be arguing. The woman believed she was witnessing an undercover police officer arresting a woman and just assumed she must have done something wrong. Little did she know that she was actually witnessing the abduction of Sarah Everard. This is Red Rum a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 43, Sarah Everard. Sarah Everard was murdered in March 2021, and it sparked a discussion around women's safety, especially because Sarah was murdered by a police officer, a man who was paid to protect her. And there was especially a lot of anger surrounding how the police dealt with the aftermath and the fact that a police officer was arrested for her murder. To start with, it's only right that we talk about Sarah. She is the victim in this story, but she was also a popular, strong, and incredibly kind young woman, as described by her family and friends. Sarah was born in Surrey in 1987, so as of 2021, she was 33 years old. She was the youngest of three children, a brother, James, and a sister, Katie. She was born to her mum, Susan, who works in charity, and her dad, Jeremy, who was a university professor. Sarah moved from Surrey and spent her childhood and teenage years in York, where her dad was a professor of electronics. She went to Fulford School, which is less than a 10-minute drive from York City Centre. York is beautiful. It's renowned for its period buildings, historical Roman city walls and castle. And Sarah had a happy childhood growing up here. She was a good student and decided to go to Durham University, which is a very good university. It ranks six out of 130 unis in the UK. So it's a huge achievement to be accepted there. And Sarah was studying human geography whilst at university. She was a popular student and gained a number of very good friends. One of those friends, another student called Rose Woolard, was studying to become a teacher. 
Sarah and Rose would become close friends. And when Rose's mother passed away, Sarah was there for her. The minute she learned about Rose's mother's death, she dropped everything so that she could be there day or night to support her friend. That's just the kind of person Sarah was. Then in 2008, Sarah graduated from university and made the decision a change was needed in her life. She knew that opportunities would be limited in Durham or even in York, and so decided first to go traveling. She explored Asia, visiting Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, and India before returning home and moving to London. Her sister, Katie, and brother James were already living in London, so it felt like the right decision for her. She moved to Brixton Hill, which is in South London, and with Sarah not only being incredibly smart, but also proactive and self-motivated, with the grades to back it up, she quickly gained a job as a marketing account manager. From there onwards, Sarah worked at a number of different PR agencies and worked her way up through to senior account manager and eventually to group account director. She did another traveling stint in 2013, where she traveled around South America for half a year and then returned to working life as normal for the next few years. And then in 2020, after she'd been in London for over 12 years, Sarah was offered a job at a digital media agency in Hoborn. This was yet another step up for her. She was able to start saving for a house and she was excited to start her new job in Hoburn. It's in Camden Borough, which is a really good area for young professionals. And there's no doubt this would have been exciting for her too. Sarah was known by her work colleagues as having a caring attitude towards them and generally being a positive presence. And as we'll go on to talk about later, her family and friends thought exactly the same. She never had a bad word to say about anyone. In the back of Sarah's mind, her mum, Susan, later said she wanted to get married and have children. That was a part of her life that hadn't even started yet, but she was already looking forward to it. And then, during her time living in London, she met Josh Loth. Josh had graduated from Nottingham University after four years studying chemistry and now lived in Brixton, and in fact, lived just down the road from Sarah. The pair got on really well, they had a lot in common, and Josh was also working his way up, starting with a job as a marketing manager and then becoming a marketing director. Both he and Sarah were ambitious and were happy together. In January of 2021, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that there would be a third national lockdown to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And much like the first one, that meant people were told to stay at home in less in support bubbles. Although certain things could happen like weddings or religious services. This was the third lockdown. And in between the lockdowns, there had been other restrictions and tiered systems. So by January, 2021, when the third lockdown was announced. Generally, people were feeling frustrated and sad, and there was some confusion. I found that third one really hard to get to grips with, and actually, what was the law or guidelines or just recommended wasn't massively clear. And just to give you a proper sense of the timeline of this, it was the 8th of March that a roadmap out of lockdown was introduced, so things would slowly begin to return to normal. 
restrictions would start to be lifted, that kind of thing. Just five days before that roadmap was introduced, Sarah Everard planned to visit her friend in Clapham. She left her house early that evening and headed straight to Sainsbury's in Brixton Hill. Once there, a CCTV image shows her entering, dressed in trainers, navy blue and white trousers that had sort of diamond patterns on them, a green raincoat and a white beanie hat. She buys a bottle of wine, leaves the Sainsbury's in Brixton Hill and heads for her friend's house in Leithwaite Road. This is only about a 40-minute walk and Leithwaite Road is just across Clapham Common. That road itself is full of very nice houses and it is an expensive area of London to live in. Average house prices there are three quarters of a million pounds. So Sarah went there, had a nice evening with her friend, drinking wine, eating food. And then just after 9pm, she decided to leave her friend's house through a back gate and make her way home. The walk back to her house would usually take her through Clapham Common and back to Brixton in about 50 minutes, so just 10 minutes past that Sainsbury's she went into on her way. She and her boyfriend Josh spoke on the phone. They talked about their plans for the next day. They spoke about meeting up and the entire call lasted just about 15 minutes. Then at 9.28pm, the phone conversation ended and any calls or WhatsApp messages that were sent after that either went straight to voicemail or didn't deliver. Initially, it wasn't clear whether Sarah's phone had been turned off then or if it had run out of battery, but either way, there were no more signal bounces from Sarah's phone. The next day, Sarah didn't turn up for a meeting at work and a few hours later, Josh realised that he hadn't heard from her at all. It was uncharacteristic for Sarah to miss work at all, but it was especially odd because she hadn't been in contact with anyone to let them know she wouldn't be in. When Sarah didn't turn up to meet Josh like they had arranged the previous day, he knew something was wrong. He called the police and reported Sarah as missing. The case was immediately classed as a missing persons case. The Lambeth police circulated a tweet notifying the public to be on the lookout for Sarah. The next day, however, the Met's specialist crime unit took over the case. It was around this time that Sarah's concerned mum and dad travelled 220 miles down from York to London. They joined to search for Sarah and made posters with up-to-date photos of her, including one where she's wearing the same green jacket she went missing in. They also retraced the route she would have taken to walk home. By the 5th of March, two days after Sarah had gone missing, Police had received 120 phone calls from members of the public and 750 homes in the area Sarah was last seen in were visited to try and gain more information. On that same day, an appeal was launched to source any CCTV images or footage that could help trace Sarah's last movements before she disappeared. Officers were particularly interested in footage from dash cam and video doorbells The investigation revealed that CCTV footage from an estate agent on the corner of the street where Sarah lived showed no sign of her ever passing by or returning to her house at any point. This is the first piece of solid evidence that we have that Sarah never made it home that night. The following day, on the 6th of March, reports came in of London search and rescue being present around the common, the big green area called Clapham Common, that Sarah would have walked across. There were also police diver teams searching the ponds at Clapham Common. 
Along with this, a CCTV image of Sarah was released. This is the most famous image of Sarah and one that, if you know anything about this case, you'll probably have seen it. It's her dressed in her green jacket and white beanie at the Sainsbury's that she visited just before her disappearance. By the 7th of March, the search and rescue team confirmed that nothing had been found in the search, but they would continue to keep looking. They set up a 100-metre cordon along Poinders Road because they stated that it could hold vital clues to Sarah's disappearance. They also began searching bins along the road and lifting drain covers, but unfortunately didn't find anything. It was clear to Sarah's family and the world that Sarah had been taken against her will. One of her uncles, Nick, pleaded for the person who had taken her to be human and let her go, or to let her talk to them, to give them a ring or a text, to at least let them know that she's okay. Sarah's boyfriend, Josh, updated his Facebook status, quote, Today more than ever, we miss our strong, beautiful friend. Hashtag International Women's Day, end quote. Over the next few days, police officers and sniffer dogs searched the areas surrounding Sarah's route home. The police have received a report of sexual assault on the road Sarah had last been seen on from a lone female on the 14th of January, so just over a month before Sarah disappeared. Further investigation into this specific area revealed that a number of other women had reported being followed by groups of men. And one woman reported being followed while she walked with a buggy down that road. During this time, the police released a statement with advice to women living in the area for them to be extra vigilant. Superintendent Chris Wright from the Met Police Unit that covers Clapham said, quote, I know that Sarah's disappearance is weighing on people's minds and the local community is, of course, concerned about her and may even feel worried. I want them to know that they should expect to see more police officers on patrol in the area as we continue to search for Sarah and talk with the community. If you want to approach them about any concerns you have, please do so. We are here to support the community and we genuinely want to help in any way we can. End quote. Obviously, knowing what we know now, that is a sad and very scary bit of irony. Because meanwhile, CCTV recordings from the night of Sarah's disappearance were coming in by the dozens and what they showed was chilling. During the first half of her walk home, as we know, Sarah called her boyfriend Josh. This call connected at 9.13pm and during that call, Sarah was picked up on CCTV on Bowood Road, which is about five streets away from her friend's house that she had just left. In this footage, there is no sign of anyone following her. A camera had then picked Sarah up on Cavendish Road at 9.28pm and then a minute later, walking along Poinders Road. This area is about a 22-minute walk away from her friend's house and at this point in her journey, she was a little over 20 minutes away from her house and 15 minutes away from the Sainsbury's she had visited earlier that evening. It's thought that she'd take this route rather than the back routes because it's known to be busy with cars and lit by streetlights, so thought of as safer. Three minutes later, a camera in a marked police car captured Sarah walking and still alone. This was at 9.32pm. Three minutes later, a camera from inside of a bus picked Sarah up a little further down Poinders Road. 
The footage shows two figures standing next to a white Vauxhall Astra, which is parked up, and its hazard lights are flashing. One of the people standing there was Sarah, and the other, at this point, was an unidentified man. Three minutes later, another bus camera captured the same footage, but this time, both front doors of the Vauxhall Astra were open. The bus camera captured the car's number plate, which is lucky because the image obviously has to be sharp enough to get the detail of that number plate. And the first bus camera footage only managed to get a sort of blurry image of the number plate. So it really was integral to the investigation that this image was usable. Detectives were then able to use that footage to track the car. They discovered that it was a hired car and tracked it back to an enterprise car rental 75 miles away in Dover. They were given the details on record for the person who had hired that car. And the name that came up was a shock to everyone involved. The car had been rented by Wayne Cousins, who was a serving Metropolitan Police officer. Wayne Cousins was born in 1972 in Devon, and initially he worked at his dad's garage. He then saw his younger brother go into police work and followed in his footsteps. He first volunteered as a special sergeant in Kent and then as an army reservist. And it was there that he learned how to work with firearms. In 2006, Wayne met his wife on the internet and then soon had two children, a girl and a boy. In 2011, he began working for the Civil Nuclear Constabulary where he would guard the country's atomic power network. He eventually transferred to work for the Met Police Service. And it's at this point that I just want to point out, this new job would be a four-hour round trip for Wayne Cousins. To me, that is like major career goals, big aspiration. And I sort of understand if that's what your goal is, then great. But knowing what we know about this man, I think we have to consider to what length he would go to purely to ensure he could gain that level of power and ultimately have control over literally anyone. During this time with the Met, he worked in a safer neighbourhood team. And at the same time, he began obsessively training at the gym. He also reportedly began taking steroids and had an extreme porn addiction. He would wear his police belt and handcuffs when not on duty. He also had a secret profile on a dating site and regularly paid for sex workers, which obviously his wife didn't know about. And then in March of 2020, the UK went into its first lockdown because of coronavirus. And the next year was a mixture of lockdowns, guidelines, regulations and recommendations. Because of this, the police were tasked with taking part in COVID patrols and ensuring regulations were enforced. Wayne Cousins did participate in numerous COVID patrols as part of his duties as a police officer. And so in March of 2021, it was completely plausible that he could have been doing a COVID patrol. Wayne spent various different days in the month before Sarah disappeared, traveling into London and its surrounding areas, planning and preparing for the crimes he would eventually commit. On the 28th of February, 2021, He went to a local store and bought self-adhesive carpet protector film. On the same day, he organised the rental of the white Vauxhall Astra. That same evening, he drove to a McDonald's drive-thru in Kent, London border, 
and allegedly flashed two female members of staff. There was obviously CCTV at this McDonald's and this incident was being investigated, but nothing was done in time to save Sarah. And I actually got a message from one of our Red Rum listeners when I said that I was going to be doing this episode. And she said her brother works at the McDonald's where this happened and was well aware of that incident. And the police were given his car number plate and his bank card details. But only after the murder did they revisit the McDonald's store. And obviously, an indecent exposure charge is very different to murder and doesn't necessarily mean that an individual will go on to commit other crimes, but a number of reviews have found that nearly, quote, 10% of flashers escalated their behaviour to more serious sexual offences. Flashing or indecent exposure is punishable by up to two years in prison, but that rarely actually happens. There were over 10,000 indecent exposure cases reported last year in England and Wales, but less than half of those were taken to court. There is a general fear around not being believed or taken seriously, and given those numbers, that does seem to be the case. Criminologist and professor Jane Monckton-Smith said, quote, Flashing is an act of sexual aggression. It's a red flag behaviour. If someone has flashing in their past, I'd expect there to be problems in their future. It may not lead directly to rape, but it may lead to things like domestic abuse, coercive control, stalking and sexual violence, end quote. Over the last four years, almost 200 people who were sentenced for rape already had indecent exposure charges against them. And eight people, also with indecent exposure charges, then went on to murder. So there is a definite link here, but it's not hard to see why Wayne Cousins' family and friends were fooled. Everyone around him was shocked. A colleague of his from his dad's garage said, quote, I was the only lady who worked there because it was a garage, but he was always polite and respectful towards me. The Wayne I remember was kind and thoughtful. So when he was arrested, I was absolutely stunned. Something must have happened to him after he joined the police. And her husband said, quote, He didn't come from a dysfunctional family. His father was a well-liked local businessman and family man. His uncle Roy was a prominent member of the Dover lifeboat team. His younger brother also became a policeman. They were all respectable members of the community. How he turned out to do what he did is a mystery, end quote. And of course, he was living under the guise of a normal family man, returning to his wife and two children, a boy aged 10 and a girl aged 8, every single night. And then, on the 1st of March, just two days before Sarah disappeared, Wayne's brother-in-law spoke to him on Skype. He described that chat as normal. Quote, He seemed fine when we spoke to him. There were no issues at all. He is an extremely warm person, very polite and calm. I have never seen him treating my sister or children badly, end quote. And so then on the 2nd of March, Wayne began his shift at 7 p.m. He worked in West London and his shift finished at 7 a.m. on the 3rd of March. Later that day, Wayne told his wife that he was working later on that evening, which was obviously untrue. And then at around 4.45 p.m., he went to collect the white Vauxhall Astra rental car he'd organised a few days earlier. He picked it up and made his way from Dover into London. At 8pm, Wayne stopped off at a Tesco in Kensington, West London, and bought a pack of 14 hairbands. 
The prosecution would later say that the hair bands were bought for, quote, the purposes of the planned kidnap and rape, whether as restraints or to be used during sex acts, end quote. And then he drove around South London, searching the streets for a woman walking alone. And then at just after 9.30pm, he spotted Sarah walking along Poinders Road in her green jacket and trainers. He pulled over and got out of the car. He was wearing his police belt with handcuffs attached when he confronted Sarah. He showed her his police warrant card and used lockdown rules as a reason to falsely arrest her. At 9.34pm, he handcuffed Sarah. A passenger in a car passing by saw this happened and noticed that Sarah was compliant. She had her head down and didn't appear to be arguing. The woman believed she was witnessing an undercover police officer arresting a woman and just assumed she must have done something wrong. Little did she know, she was actually witnessing the abduction. At 9.37pm, Wayne put Sarah in the back of his white Vauxhall Astra and made sure her seatbelt was on. Then he made the 75-mile journey back to Dover, where he parked up near his own Seat car. Before he left for London, he had parked his family car in a non-residential area of Dover so that he could transfer his victim into that car later that night. At 11.43pm, CCTV footage catches the family car pulling away from North Military Road in Dover and driving towards the village of Shepherdswell. Mobile phone data then places Wayne's phone in the Shepherdswell area, which he knew well, from 11.53pm until three minutes to one. It's believed that during this time, he raped Sarah. And soon after that, he strangled her with his police belt. His car was then picked up on automatic number plate recognition camera at 2.31am as he returned to Dover. Three minutes later, he was captured on CCTV at a BP service station buying two bottles of water, an apple juice, a Lucasaid and a carrier bag. The next sighting of his car was at 3.21am as it passed by Hodes Wood, just west of Ashford in Kent. We know now that he was dumping Sarah's body here. His car was seen twice more visiting Hodes Wood and he leaves just before dawn. At 7.30am, he drove back to the street he'd left his hire car eight hours earlier and returned it to the Enterprise store. He then arrived at Costa Coffee Shop at 8.14am, where he bought a coconut hot chocolate and a Bakewell tart. In the CCTV footage that captures this, you can see him fidgeting and wringing his hands together. And then after that, he drove about 20 minutes to a river in Sandwich in Kent. He threw Sarah's phone into the river, along with the EE SIM card he'd broken up. At 11.05am, CCTV at a BP petrol station captures Wayne filling up his car and buying a salted caramel latte. He also fills up a petrol can with nearly six litres of petrol. Moments later, he goes to a drive through McDonald's and buys an extra-large value meal and an orange juice. Then at 12.40 that afternoon, Wayne's car is seen again in Hodes Wood, and that's when he also pours the petrol he'd just bought into a broken fridge that he'd previously placed Sarah's body inside, and he lights it on fire. So during this time, we know that Sarah's family and friends were growing increasingly concerned over her disappearance. 
And on the 5th of March, which was the same day Sarah's parents travelled down to London to help look for her, Wayne Cousins was going about his daily life pretty normally. He had already booked that time off of work and there's a recording of a phone call he made to his local vets about his dog. Hey, yeah, I was wondering if I could book my um, dog in for the, uh, for the vet so I can have a discussion about her issues, please. It's Cousins, C-O-U-Z-E-N-S. Here's Maddie. That's the one. He's planning things to do a week later, so he has complete confidence that he isn't under suspicion for Sarah's murder. Also, the tone of this call, he sounds completely relaxed and at ease. There's no indication that he feels any kind of remorse for what he's done. Uh, No, 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 that's fine. Um, I I work shift work, so either... um, let me think. Um, but, but would it be possible the Friday the 12th, um, sometime after half past three? Clock would be brilliant. Yep, no, that's fine. Um, she, well, we think she's suffering from, like, separation anxiety. That afternoon, he went to B&Q and buys two large builder's bags, which he planned to use to transport Sarah's body. He is seen in Hodes Wood later that afternoon, and then the next morning, which was the 7th of March. He told his family they were all going on a little family trip. And then he took them all, his wife and two young children, to Hodes Wood. He let his children play very close by to where he dumped Sarah's body in the pond just a few days earlier. He was due to be back at work on the 8th of March, but he called in and told his supervisor he was too unwell to work. I assume because of all the coverage of Sarah's case, Wayne was probably very nervous at this point. And then, on the evening of the 9th of March, he wiped his phone back to factory settings. And then, at 7.50pm, there was a knock at Wayne's front door. There was still, at this point, hope that Sarah was being kept alive somewhere. So, an emergency police interview was authorised which means that there didn't need to be a solicitor there. I'll link the video to his arrest in the show notes, but basically, the officers show him a picture and asks if he knows who Sarah is. He says no. They then ask if he knows anything about what's happened to her, and he tells them he does know what he's heard on the news, but that's it. The officer presses him, and eventually, Wayne says that he's in financial trouble, and he underpaid a sex worker a few weeks earlier, and that led to a gang being after him. He said the gang threatened to hurt his family if he didn't do what they said, and he goes on to say that they demanded he pick up girls for them. The officer questioning him asks how they would contact Wayne, and he sort of avoids that question, but he does eventually settle on the fact that they didn't have his phone number and he didn't have theirs. They would just show up at his house and then tell him to be here or be there. He said that on the night he abducted Sarah, he was flashed by a Mercedes van with a Romanian number plate and that he had pulled over into a lay-by and three Eastern European men got out of the van and took Sarah. Wayne even goes on to give a complete description of the three men and the location that this all apparently happened. Obviously, we know now that this is total BS and the police knew this too, so they continued to question him and eventually they gained information about a small plot of land in the woods that Wayne owned. 
They also had the mobile phone data from Wayne's phone by this point. So they went out that way to try and look for more evidence and establish what might have happened to Sarah. On the 10th of March, Sarah's body was discovered just 100 metres away from the plot of land Wayne owned. She had been badly burnt, so had to be identified by her dental records. Wayne's car was seized, and he was taken into custody to await further questioning. Forensics found a broken fragment of Sarah's SIM card in Wayne's car, as well as a blood stain on one of the back seats. That blood stain matched Sarah's DNA. They also found semen on the back seat, which matched Wayne's DNA. There was no doubt that the gang story was a complete lie, and they had a lot of evidence to back this up. Whilst in custody, Wayne deliberately hit his head on the toilet bowl in his cell. He was due to be interviewed not long after that, but instead was found unconscious on the floor of his cell. He was taken by ambulance to a hospital for treatment, and after treatment, he was discharged and returned to prison. In June, Wayne pleaded guilty to kidnap, rape, and the murder of Sarah. This meant he avoided a trial. After all the details of the crime and of Wayne's background being a police officer came out, questions were raised over why he was able to be in this position and if the vetting process was thorough enough. To be in that position, Wayne had undergone several rounds of vetting, including a number of enhanced checks for armed roles at three different police forces. When he was trained to carry a gun and served at a high-security nuclear site, he was required to have one of the highest levels of clearance, and he got through. Ultimately, the Metropolitan Police Force defended its process, stating that a review found no information was available back when he joined the force that would have made any difference to their decision. And right now, the Independent Office for Police Conduct is investigating whether officers failed to properly progress the claims against Wayne Cousins of indecent exposure. But that has been the same since Wayne's arrest, and we're now on the 1st of February, 2022. So whether anything will come of it at this point, we just don't know. Although 11 months is a long time. The Metropolitan Police then issued advice for women who fear male police officers might not be genuine, suggesting that they call 999 or shout out to a passerby, run into a house or wave a bus down for help. Obviously, this was met with heavy criticism and fears for women's safety. A vigil called Reclaim the Streets was organised as a stance against the Met's handling of the risks posed to women. The request for the vigil was refused by the Met, so Reclaim the Streets took the case to the High Court, but the police still refused to facilitate the vigil as legal. This was during restrictions that were still in place for the COVID crisis. Many women attended a virtual Reclaim the Streets vigil online and in doorsteps, but for many other women who did attend, they were met with violent arrests by Met police officers. The organisers set up a fundraiser for Rosa Fund, which is a charity that supports women whose lives are devastated by male violence. So far, they've raised over half a million pounds. In October, Karen Ingala Smith released a photo of 81 women who had been killed at the hands of a man since Sarah's death. You'll have heard of some of these women, but not all of them. 
I'll put a link to the article in the show notes below, and I'd really suggest that you take a look and have a read of the article. I cover cases where women are killed by men far too often on Red Rum, and I will be covering any of these 81 women's cases where there's enough information available to make a full episode. Sarah's sister's victim impact statement was really horrifying. Quote, You used your warrant card to trick my sister into your car. She sat in a car, handcuffed for hours. What could she have thought she had done wrong? What lies did you tell her? When did she realise that she wasn't going to survive the night? And her mum said, quote, I wonder when she realised she was in mortal danger. I wonder what her murderer said to her. In her last hours, she was faced with brutality and terror, alone with someone intent on doing her harm. The thought of it is unbearable. Sarah was handcuffed, unable to defend herself, and there was no one to rescue her. She spent her last hours on this earth with the very worst of humanity. She lost her life because Wayne Cousins wanted to satisfy his perverted desires. It is a ridiculous reason. It is nonsensical. How could he value a human life so cheaply? I cannot comprehend it. I am incandescent with rage at the thought of it. There wasn't a trial in this case, but at sentencing, the judge's closing remarks were this. Sarah Everard was a wholly blameless victim of a grotesquely executed series of circumstances that culminated in her death and the disposal of her body. She was simply walking home. Sarah Everard's state of mind and what she had to endure would have been as bleak and agonising as it is possible to imagine. Hi Red Rum listeners, I just wanted to share with you a trailer for episode 2 of Humans, true stories about the most intriguing parts of human behaviour, the good, the bad and the downright horrific. You can get the first three episodes right now on YouTube, the link will be in the show notes of this episode. The hijackers then make another demand for fuel and this is the third time that they've asked and the control tower informs them that their demands won't be considered until they release all of the people on board. The hijackers then inform the control tower that they'd be killing one person in the next 15 minutes, and every 15 minutes after that, another passenger would be killed. 15 minutes later, and with no sign of the fuel they wanted, the hijacker pointed to one of the passengers and told them to come on forward. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.